Well, good morning. The, the rumors of my demise have been greatly exaggerated. I'm, I'm back, and it's good to be back. I've had a tremendous month. Uh, thank, thank, thank you. Thank you. Gosh, I, I almost feel like I asked for my own applause there, so maybe let's just move on past that. Had a great month, though, folks. I've, I've visited a number of churches, been studying, been meeting with staff, doing a lot of things, a lot preparing for uh, this new series that we're going to do. And I have to tell you, I'm as excited about this fall as I think any fall we've had here at the Heights. And the number of falls I've had here are starting to add up. And and I'll tell you, there's, there's two specific reasons. One of them you just saw a little bit about what Andy was explaining there with that worth Jesus, the opportunity we're going to have this fall to make decisions and then be able to share that with each other. I think it's going to be a great opportunity to encourage, to motivate, to, to challenge, to maybe even help us creatively think of, man, what is Jesus worth and, and where is that showing up in my life? And of course, as we're sharing this with each other, uh, we're going to have an opportunity for the gospel of Mark to kind of be giving us the fuel for doing just that. Hey, want to start this morning with a really pretty basic question. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Are you a Christian? Yeah, we can clap for that. Yeah, go, if we're going to do it, do it. There you go. You know what? That might be called maybe the most significant question we'll ever answer, right? And as significant, as important as that question is, I might suggest that the question all by itself can actually be not that significant, There is the opportunity to answer that question with little to no thought at all. I mean, I think the where we answer it, I think the when we answer it, sometimes is what adds the significance of it. You know, there are places, there are times where somebody can say, hey, are you a follower of Christ? And man, we don't even have to think. We just pop off the answer. Oh man, yeah, absolutely. Oh, I'm American, aren't I? You know, or, well, yeah, that's how my family was. Or, yeah, I go to that church up there. Oh, I love the, I love the teachings of Jesus. I mean, we can, we can just say it with little to no thought at all. We say it in here. Gosh, I mean, you ask that question here and this. Or, Absolutely, man, we're bold, we're dogmatic. But I think if we're honest with ourselves, there are some other places, some other times, maybe work, may, maybe at school, where when that question comes, and I'm not suggesting you wouldn't be bold there. I'm not, I'm not suggesting you wouldn't say yes there. I'm just saying we get into some of these other places and we get a little more tentative. We, we get a little more cautious. We start to do what? We weigh. Who's asking this? Why are they asking this? What, what's my answer going to mean? And we start weighing what that's going to cost. What that's going to mean. In here, absolutely bold and dogmatic. Hey, what's our answer in Iraq? What's your answer if you're a believer in Syria? Where where right now ISIS, I mean, we're very well of some of their horrific deeds, aren't we? These journalists and these beheadings. But you know, there's something that's not being reported on at all. The same people doing those beheadings, ISIS is also finding every Iraqi Syrian Christian they can and demanding you either renounce your faith or pay the consequences. And over the last six months, hundreds and hundreds of believers not only been killed, they were crucified. Hey, hey, what's our answer then? Are we bold and dogmatic then? You see how much the when and the where 
can kind of wear. I mean, that kind of gives a whole new meaning to I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free, right? But you know, I guess one of my questions this morning is what is the relationship of that question to being an American? You know, America and Christianity have had a very interesting, and I, this is an opinion statement, a devolving relationship. If you go back to our beginning as a nation, you look at our founding fathers, and I know there's debates about this, whether they were genuine believers or whether they were deists and all these things. Hey, it's irrelevant. Go look at their writings. Clearly, profoundly, they believe they were building a Christian based on scriptures, based on Christian principles. They believe they were building a Christian nation. You know, the funny thing is we talk a lot today about the freedom, hopefully not from religion, but the freedom of religion. You know, now while I believe what they wrote in our Constitution includes this, they were not really thinking about the freedom to be Christian or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or nothing. You know what their idea of freedom was? You see, they had come out of a context where the government set a national church. And so to be a citizen, you had to be Presbyterian. You had to be Baptist. You had to be Methodist. So when they were building that, their idea of freedom of of religion was, we're not going to force a denomination on you. You get to choose. There's going to be a freedom to choose the church, a freedom to, to choose the denomination. That's what their idea of freedom was. And so it started, that's where we got started. And, and then our relationship traveled a little bit and we, and we got to the place where freedom meant that Christianity was just one of many religions. And I do believe what they wrote includes that. But now it's just, you know, it's one of many religions. And I believe the relationship has traveled a little further. Again, an opinion statement, you don't have to agree with me, but I, I think we're at a place in America now where we're really trying to honor and to celebrate and respect religions accept Christianity. Everyone out there but Christianity. I think a lot of us would say that, you know, from our experience, we look at our government and it is antagonistic toward Christian values and ideals as it's ever been in our lifetime. We look at the, at the business world. We look at the entertainment world. And there, there's just not a lot of room for, for Christianity there, for the ideals and values of a, of a Christian. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I, obviously, we got a, a Chick-fil-A and, and we've got Christian movies that come out every so often. But if you're living in that world, you know it. You know, there's not a lot of room for that in that world. And education, I think education is a lot like what I just said. How do we honor and respect all the religions except Christianity? So, so here's my question. How far, how long can we continue to journey down this road where, where Christianity has an increasingly antagonistic relationship with government, with business, with entertainment, with education, and it not finally arrive at a place, folks, where it's going to cost to claim the name of Christ. You know, Christians in America have largely gotten a pass at having to weigh any cost of following Jesus. If that pass is about to expire, what's that going to mean to our relationship? What, what's that going to mean to who we are in Jesus Christ? Now let's leave for a second 21st century America, and let's travel to 1st century Rome. 
Now, it's not, a, it's not an exact comparison because unlike most of American history, in Rome, it always cost to follow Jesus Christ. For one, Christians was not like anything we have experienced. It was a very small minority. So a lot of culture didn't know what you were, didn't understand what you were, maybe were aggravated, annoyed by what you were. Most of culture served multiple gods, and and this idea of one made you a a little bit weird. And and, and so there, there was always a little bit of difficulty there. But when you were actually in Rome, the city of, okay, you liken that maybe to 19th century New York. It's this massive city with a growing population. And so there's this high population, there's high pollution, high crime, high stress. It is a hard place. It's, it's, it's not a safe place to live. It is difficult to survive in New York City at that time. And you know where people found security and safety? In their ethnicities. And so that's where all these neighborhoods popped up that today we know as Chinatown or, or Little Italy. But, but people would group up in their ethnicities and that was your safety. That was your security. The exact same thing was happening in Rome. But here's the thing. When you became a follower of Christ, quite often, most of the time, your ethnicity kicked you out of the neighborhood, for lack of a better word. They, they rejected you. So you were on your own in a very dangerous place to live. I mean, it really brought a fresh and new idea to, to what it means to be the church and, and what the church family would, would be for somebody. So it's a dangerous place to live. And yet, the cost was about to go up. In 64 AD, Rome burns. Nero blames that on Christians. He was under a little bit of political pressure. Some things were falling apart. Now Rome is burning. He blames that on the earth. There's no evidence that Christians did that. There's no motivation. What what would Christians gain by burning the city they live in? There, There was nothing there. But he blamed that and culture went with them on it. And so that's when you begin to have, while it was periodic that Christians were being arrested or martyred, now it's the norm. It's happening every single day. Nero is feeding them to the lions. He's burning them at the stake. And if you escape Nero, you just ran headlong into a culture that hated you. You ran headlong into a culture that would even itself would would brutalize you. So while it had always cost to be a believer, the cost was going up. And folks, whenever the cost goes up, what do we do? Don't we evaluate if it's worth it? Whether we're talking about following Jesus or our latte or the cost of gas or whether we're going to fly or drive, when costs go up to something, we say, hey, do I need to be doing this at all? Do I need to be doing this this much? How do we cut back? Is it worth it? And that is what the believers in Rome were handling, dealing with, working through in a new and relevant way. And the gospel of Mark was written to help them answer that question. Why why was that, that gospel that you and I know, why was it written? To help them answer that question. Is Jesus worth it? Folks, I believe, you may or may not see it, I just believe we're at a critical time in understanding who we are as Christians and what that means in the culture we are and what we live and how we're going to move forward here. This is not a message talking about the big bad society that's not Christian enough for us. This has nothing to do with it. It's going to be who we are in that society. 
Now, let's think a little bit about about Mark and, and about this gospel. Mark was written by a guy named, oddly enough, Mark, yeah. I'll give you his full name. His full name's John Mark. John's his Hebrew name. Mark is his Roman name. And Mark grew up. His dad died young. He had a, a Jewish mom, a, a widow, obviously. And it appears that his family was of some means. They, they had some wealth. They had a large home. And, and one of the reasons we know that is because the early churches, it was gathering. I mean, you know, it, it takes, I mean, they all lived in very small homes. Even if you had wealth, you didn't live in the kind of homes we think of today. But they had a home of some size because the early church was meeting in their home. One of the early gatherings of believers, they, for, for worship, for study, for encouragement, for prayer, they came to, to John Mark's house. And because of that, guess what John Mark got to do? He, he, was, he was rubbing elbows with some of the big dogs. He got to know Paul. He got to know Peter. These guys were coming to his house. They got there early before everybody else did. They were there late after everybody else was gone. He was getting to make friends with these guys. So he really was kind of growing up in a pretty cool situation. But not everything we know about John Mark is all that flattering. As a matter of fact, in Mark's gospel, we hear this odd piece of information. It it happens in Mark 14, verse 51 and 52. In Mark 14, we're we're getting close to Jesus being arrested. He's going to be crucified the next day. And and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Y'all know the story, right? He's there. He's praying. The disciples are with him. And then all of a sudden, in come rushing the soldiers. People are yelling. People are running. They grab Jesus. They're grabbing disciples. Disciples are fleeing. And then all of a sudden, you come up on verse 51. And it says, and one young man ran away naked what 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 (laughs) why why is that even in there why do i need that information and what was he doing naked you know now folks do you know who most people believe that young man was john mark did you know none of the other gospels give that little tidbit of information i think matthew and luke and john are thinking man i'm gonna tell that on mark what an embarrassing situation now john mark didn't put his name there but yeah i i Very personal story for me. So he includes it. Most of church tradition going all the way back says, hey, that's who that young man was. Now, you may be still stuck on, why was he naked? Okay, well, you remember that. Y'all have seen Christmas plays and he's, right? You know know what kind of New Testament clothing looks like? You know, they they just wore kind of drapes. You know, you cover it with a, you, you, you tie it up with a rope or a robe type thing. Well, he's probably in something pretty loose, pretty simple. I'm, I'm kind of imagining a soldier grabbing him and he's trying to get away and wiggles out and he wiggles out of his clothes and off he streaks into history. There it is in scripture. <laughs> he fled the scene. Man, you know, it got hot. It got difficult. He got out. And you know, that's not the first time John Mark abandoned. There's a really interesting story at the end of Acts chapter 15. And it's kind of a sad story. It's the story of, a, of an argument and a breakup between two great friends. Friends that loved God together, served God together, and then go their separate ways over a disagreement. And you know what their disagreement was over? John Mark. The two guys we're talking about aren't just any two guys. It's Paul and Barnabas. And they're getting ready to go out on a, on a mission trip. And, and Barnabas says, let's take John Mark. And, and Paul says, no. Which one of them was right in the argument? Well, Barnabas, gosh, Barnabas, Barnabas was right. Barnabas is an incredible man of grace. 
Barnabas will just, he'll give you a chance over and over. No matter how many times you fail him, Barnabas will say, come on, come on, let's do this. And you know who had benefited from that? Paul. Y'all remember Paul's history, right? Paul murdered Christians. Paul shut churches down. And then Paul became a believer. And, and when he starts to come, can you imagine if he walks away? Hey, hey, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. They didn't trust him. They, they just believed he was, you know, being deceitful. This was some kind of trick. He was trying to, to get names and find out where people were meeting. And it was Barnabas who went and befriended Paul. And it was Barnabas who went to the church and said, guys, we got to do this. This, this guy's become a believer. We got to love him. We got we to let him in. So that's, that was Barnabas's character. Folks, it's the character of a believer. I'm not saying there's never a time to discipline. I'm not saying there's never a time to draw lines. But I'll tell you something, as a believer, it should be our intent to go as far as we can with grace. Until it hurts. As far as we can with grace. So Barnabas was right. So you're saying Paul was wrong. No, Paul was right. See, well, you can't say they're both right. Yeah, I can. Well, how can they both be right? Because I said so. Just get over it. No, how can Paul be right? Okay, I need to back up and give you a little more information. Paul and Barnabas had already been on a mission trip. They'd already been out there, and John Mark was with them. And when the going got tough, guess what Barnabas did? Or what, what Mark did? He got going the other direction. He abandoned them. This is the second time. Man, when it got difficult, when it got hard, he fled. And here's Paul heading out. Hey, you want to get a feel of what I'm talking about? Go home this afternoon and read Acts 11, 12, 13, 14. Read the chapters leading up to 15. When you go on a mission journey with Paul, the question is not what do we do on our off day? What, what are we going to tour on our free day? Man, he was being arrested. He was being stoned. He was being beaten. He was being run out of towns. Hey, if you're living in that kind of pressure, don't you want to know that the people who are with you are with you? Don't you want to know I can count on these folks? If you're in the midst of that, you don't want to have to be worrying about what are they going to do? What's he going to do? I'm not, hey, I've already seen John Mark. I already know what he's going to do. By the way, just, just to bring closure to this, we run a little further in New Testament history and John Mark and Paul are back together serving again. But it's just incredible. Here these two guys are. They part company over John Mark abandoning. Now, folks, I tell you that whole story to say this. Do you remember what the Gospel of Mark is about? You, wh why is it being written? To Mark. Mark is writing people, encouraging them, listen, no matter the cost, Jesus is worth it. Mark is writing that? You pick Mark to deliver that message? I mean, hey, Mark could be called uncommitted. Mark could be called weak. Mark abandoned. Why would you give that to him? Because it's not an issue of Paul or Barnabas, folks. Jesus doesn't quit on people. He didn't quit on Mark. And he's not going to quit on you. Mark made a decision at least twice that we know of where he said Jesus isn't worth it. Jesus is worthless. But Jesus forgave him. Jesus kept him in the game. And he actually ended up becoming one of four guys that would give us the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, what we talk about, Mark, is true of every one of us in here, isn't it? Every one of us, not once or twice. I'm, I'm going to step on limb, at least for me, and I'm going to say it's probably true of you too. Our actions and our words have proven Jesus to be worthless 
more times than we can count. We came up to a moment. Am I going to do this? No, I'm not. Jesus is not worth it. Am I going to tell the truth here? No, Jesus is not worth it. Am I going to go along with what everybody's saying here? Yeah, I am. Jesus is not worth it to not go along. I mean, folks, you and I have got more words and actions or lack of words and lack of actions that would communicate that Jesus is worthless. Maybe as much as we do that he's worthy. And, and I think for some of us, that maybe is so much of, that's our whole Christian life, is really just communicating he doesn't really play any worth. And we have set ourselves. It's not that somebody judged you or condemned you. You set yourself on the sidelines. You, you put yourself on the bench. Hey, I want to tell you something today. You can be great for God. You can be great for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Mark is proof. Because he has actions. He has times that he said, Jesus is worthless. And now here he is writing a gospel. Challenging, encouraging, helping people to know how worthy he is. You can be great for God. I don't care what was going on before you walked through that door. I don't care what is in your past. You step out in faith and you step in with Christ. You can be great for him. Now let's think about where this is all taking place. There's the author, there, there, there's Mark, and then there's Rome where this is all taking place. Mark and Peter, okay, we already learned a little bit about Mark's relationship with, with Paul. Mark and Peter are probably in our vernacular, we would say they're on staff together. They're on staff, they're, they're ministers together at that church in Rome. And so more likely, a lot of this gospel, Mark's source of information, is Peter. We know his, his name is not on it, but really, I mean, there's some things Mark is writing. You know Peter was the source of information. That, and of course, both of them being guided by the Holy Spirit, who's the author of all Scripture, every single word. And so they're working together on that. They're, they're ministering there. The, the book, the gospel is probably written in about 65, 67, that window A.D. Now, you remember what just happened in 64, Right? Rome has burned, the pressure's going up, the Christians there, they're not saying, hey, I don't think it's worth it. They're saying, help me, help me know that it's worth it because the cost is, is going up and they, they ask for this gospel account and Mark begins to deliver it to them. And this gospel account has, has a very Gentile flavor to it. You remember, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. That's pretty much how the scripture breaks it down. They're Jews. You and I were Gentiles. And this gospel was really aimed at our audience, especially compared to like a Matthew that was very Jewish centered. Now I say that, you know, I'll bet a lot of us, we read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and don't they all kind of sound the same? Yeah, they do. You can say it. It's okay. Yeah, you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they're telling a lot of the same stories. They're communicating a lot of the same teachings. Give or take, they go in a lot of the same order. And you could almost read, why did we need this told three times? One time probably would have done it. And they sound a lot alike. And yet, the reality is, they're actually very different. They're very new. Obviously, they're using the same content, the person of Jesus Christ, but they're, they're aiming that at different audiences. And so you have a Matthew who's aiming at Jews. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, he quotes the Old Testament 60 times. Six zero. Six zero times Matthew is going to quote something out of the Old Testament. Why? Because he's trying to convince the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament had always told them to be looking for. That the Old Testament had promised them. Sixty times he quotes the Old Testament. You know how many times Mark quotes the Old Testament? Once. 
<laughs> 61. Does that seem like a difference to you? But think of his audience. He's writing Gentiles. They don't have an Old Testament, don't know what an Old Testament is, may not care what an Old Testament is. Quoting the Old Testament isn't going to help him cast the story, create the story. So he doesn't use that. Compared to some of the other Gospels, you're going to see a lot more Latinisms, Romanisms versus Jewishisms. Mark is a gospel of action. It's a, it's a gospel of action. It's a gospel that moves where you take like the gospel of John. Uh, you're 21 chapters long. Do you realize that eight of those 21 chapters take place on one night, the night in the upper room? It's eight chapters of Jesus teaching. You know what Mark does? Action. Remember, he's focused on action. He'll say this, and Jesus taught them. And then he doesn't tell you what he taught them. <laughs> that's, a, that's something else. I'm about the action. Jesus taught them. Now he does. You're, we are going to see in the Gospel of Mark things that Jesus taught. But he's just very about the action. He's very about moving. 42 times in the Gospel of Mark, you're going to read the word immediately. Chapter 1, verse 10 is the first place you'll see it. Immediately. Jesus got out of the boat and immediately. Jesus taught them this and then immediately. The sun went down and then immediately. I mean, he's always immediately. You think, man, is he trying to catch a plane or what? It's, it's a gospel of action. It's a gospel that moves. And yet the interesting, all this action, all this movement, did you know that Mark is more likely to tell you what Jesus is feeling than the other gospels are? Mark is going to give us more insight to Jesus' emotions at certain places and certain moments. So you see, Mark is, is, is grabbing all of these things, pulling these things together. What am I going to communicate about who he is? What am I going to communicate about what he's done? What is going to be the evidence that he's worth it? Helping these believers determine if Jesus is worth dying for. Dying for. That's not something we consider, is it? You know, we're weighing if Jesus is worth a couple of hours on Sunday morning. We're weighing if he's worth telling the truth over here. We're weighing if we should forgive somebody. We're weighing if we should give to the work of Jesus in and through the church. We're weighing these things. This gospel's written to help these believers determine, hey, if it costs my life, am I ready for that? It really, what Mark is about is discipleship. That's going to be a key word. It's going to be a key idea. You know, when you and I hear the word discipleship, we think of taking a class, right? <laughs> and, and discipleship is taking classes. But there, th that's just a piece of discipleship. Discipleship is the process. The word means learner, means follower. If I'm a disciple of Christ, I'm a follower of Christ. I'm a learner of Christ. I am continually in a process of learning who he is and then I'm learning that based on who he is, how that's to come out in my life. How it comes out in my finances, my calendar, my decisions, my relationships, my relationships with those I love the most. How does, my, how does what I believe about Christ come out in my relationships with those I don't love at all? You see, how does who I believe him to be affect everything? That's, that's discipleship. How does it affect every single second that I walk on this earth? And that's what the Gospel of Mark is about. And it's presented in a very pastoral way. Mark isn't writing this Gospel for a publishing company. He, he's not, this isn't a hypothetical treatise. He's writing this as a pastor to people he knows. He loves these people. 
He's trying to care for them. He's trying to minister them. As he pens this gospel, no doubt, folks, in his mind comes to mind this family over here whose son he buried yesterday and this family whose grandfather and grandmother he buried last week and that family whose daughter he buried four days ago. All of them he buried because Nero had fed them to the lions. I mean, this isn't a hypothetical idea. Hey, would you be willing? He is trying to minister to people who are living with friends and family who've been killed for Christ, who are weighing the very real possibility that they will die because they believe in Jesus. That was what he is writing for. And so right, right out of the blocks, chapter 1, verse 1, he's establishing the worth. This story... Chapter 1, verse 1, is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, that phrase right out of the blocks is saying, this is what we're talking about. This isn't a story about a great president. This isn't a story about about a a great person that that saw injustice being done in society and and, and fixed it and and paid a great price for it. This isn't a story about about this guy who went on to become a Hall of Fame NFL quarterback. This isn't a story about a, a celebrity that we've grown up with since we were a child. This is a story about the Son of God. And if I believe that, then what it's to mean in everything in my life. I want to read you a passage. It's a passage we're going to come back to in the weeks to come as we're working our way through Mark. It it is a passage, I believe, if if it's not the central passage to the entire gospel, it's in the top two or three. It's a key passage. It, It is a passage that really presents what this entire gospel is about. I'm not going to read the entire passage. The entire passage, I would encourage you to look at it maybe later today. It's, it's Mark chapter 8, verse 27 to 38. Let me begin reading in Mark 8, verse 27. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say I am? And the disciples said, oh, Lord, you're, you're not going to believe this. Man, I was sitting in the coffee shop the other day, and, and the table next to me, they thought you were John the Baptist come back to life. Another disciple pops up and says, hey, I was standing on the street corner the other day waiting for a bus, and these people behind me, they thought you were Elijah come back to life. Another disciple says, oh, a lot of them are just, they just think you're some kind of prophet. Hey, you know what? Jesus is interested in groupthink. Jesus It's important to him what we, the Heights Baptist family, it's important to him what we as a whole believe him to be. It's important to him what we as a whole communicate him to be to our culture and to our community. But as important as it is what we believe about Jesus, folks, Jesus, 100% of the time, with every single individual, wants to get eye to eye. Heart to heart. Hey, I know what everybody thinks. What about you? Who do you believe me to be? If you do believe that I'm a son of God, then there's an invitation. Mark 8, verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, okay, you think I'm something. 
You're here, you're listening to this, you're, you're following me because you believe me to be something special. Okay, if you're going to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The gospel calls for your life. I think that is a grossly miscommunicated, undercommunicated piece of the gospel in American Christianity. The gospel actually calls for your life. Whether it's weighing what you're going to do on a Sunday morning or it's weighing what you're going to do if you're going to hold on to the name of Christ before people who will kill you. And every single thing in between. Oh, the one who issues this invitation loves you. There's nobody who loves you more than Christ. Think of the person you think loves you the very most. You know, you you couldn't say Jesus loves them ten times more than that. Because you can't measure how much greater Jesus' love is for you than the person you think loves you the most. Jesus' love is perfect. It never fails. It never misses. It's never negligent. It doesn't just do the good thing. It does the perfect thing. Jesus loves you. Has more for you than anyone else. Wants more for you than anyone else. Jesus finds joy when you have joy. Jesus grieves. Jesus hurts when you grieve and when you hurt. But make no mistake. His gospel calls for your life. And we're going to take 12 Sundays unwrapping the gospel of Mark to see if he's worth it. Is he worth it? That's discipleship. My prayer for us this fall and I started, I started praying this yesterday. When you hear what I'm praying for you, you may not be very interested in this series. <laughs> you may not be very interested in me praying for you. I, I want you to think of several questions. Who is Jesus? Who, who do I believe him to be? What does that mean to my life? What in my life is evidence of what I believe Jesus to be? Th- those, those kinds of questions. I am praying, and I'm praying right now even though my eyes are open. I am praying that those questions plague us every single day for the rest of 2014. Oh, sure, they probably should be for the rest of our lives. But my my prayer is very specific. I am praying for you. Lord, I pray that between now and December 31st, I can't, they can't live a 24-hour time period without at least once coming up on a situation, on a moment, on a relationship where I don't stop and think, hey, wait a minute, wait a, wait a minute, wait a minute. What is it I say I believe about Christ? And, it, and if I believe that, then what does it mean to this moment? What, is, what does it look like right here? What is Jesus worth? I'm praying that plagues us. Lord, place those questions on my heart. Put them on the front of my mind. Don't let me, don't let them live 24 hours without it popping up. Amen.
hope you'll join me these next 12 weeks as we do nothing more than answer his invitation to be a disciple.